Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by. Welcome to Tech's second quarter 2020 earnings release conference call. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. This conference call is being recorded on Thursday, July 23, 2020. I would now like to turn the conference call over to Fraser Phillips, Senior Vice President, Investor Relations and Strategic Analysis. Please go ahead. Uh, thanks very much, Lori, and good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us for Tech's second quarter t- uh, 2020 results conference call. Before we begin, I would like to draw your attention to the caution regarding forward-looking statements in slide two. This presentation contains forward-looking statements regarding our business. This slide describes the assumptions underlying those statements. Various risks and uncertainties may cause actual results to vary. Tech does not assume the obligation to update any forward-looking statement. would also like to point out that we use various non-GAAP measures in this presentation. You can find explanations and reconciliations regarding these measures in the appendix. With that, I will turn the call over to Don Lindsay, our President and CEO. Thank you, Fraser, and good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I will begin on slide three with our second quarter highlights, followed by Lon Mills, our CFO, who will provide some additional color on the financial results. We will then conclude with a Q&A session where Ron and I and additional members of our senior management team would be happy to answer any questions. So these continue to be challenging times as the world works its way through the COVID-19 pandemic. At Tech, we remain focused on protecting our people and communities while continuing to operate responsibly and safely to support the economic recovery in the wake of the pandemic. We took steps during the quarter to further strengthen our financial position and reduce costs and position Tech to significantly improve margins towards the end of 2020 and early 2021 as we complete our major capital projects. We were also pleased to be recognized as one of the best 50 corporate citizens in Canada, ranking by Corporate Knights for the 14th consecutive year. Turning to our financial results on slide four, in the second quarter, revenues were 1.7 billion, and gross profits before depreciation and amortization was 453 million. Profitability was impacted by the significant negative effect that COVID-19 had on both prices and demand for our products, as well as abnormal costs because of the pandemic. Bottom line adjusted profit attributable to shareholders was 89 million or 17 cents per share on both a basic and a fully diluted basis. Details of the second quarter's earnings adjustments are on slide five. The most significant adjustment was 147 million of COVID-19 expenses in the quarter on an after-tax basis, which was primarily related to the suspension of our QB2 project. We also had a $69 million adjustment for environmental costs, which relates to the impact of remeasuring our decommissioning and restoration provisions for our closed operations using a current credit-adjusted risk-free discount rate. In addition, we had adjustments of $38 million for inventory write-downs and $17 million for share-based compensation. This was partially offset by commodity derivatives and taxes and other items which were $20 million and $21 million, respectively. With these and other minor adjustments, bottom line adjusted profit attributable to shareholders was $89 million, or $0.17 cents per share, on both a basic and fully diluted basis. I'll now run through key updates for the quarter starting on slide six. The COVID-19 pandemic obviously had a significant negative impact on our business in the quarter. While all of our operations are currently producing with comprehensive virus prevention measures in place, the economic impacts of the pandemic have reduced demand and prices for our products. We expensed $260 million in costs associated with COVID-19 in the second quarter on a pre-tax basis, and this includes $151 million of QB2 demobilization, remobilization, and care and maintenance costs, and $75 million of borrowing costs that would otherwise have been capitalized had QB2 construction not been suspended. Ron will speak to these uh, items in a few minutes. 
Looking at our key updates in our steelmaking coal business on slide seven, we continue to focus on increasing margins, not volumes. Our second quarter sales were 5 million tons as the pandemic continued to negatively impact supply and demand, particularly outside China. And I'll just ask if everyone could please go on mute uh, so we can uh, eliminate the paper shuffling. Thanks very much. Chinese steel production returned to pre-pandemic levels during the quarter and established new average daily record highs in both May and June. We are shifting to a lower cost base due to a declining strip ratio, also due to the LCU plant expansion, which was completed, due to the Cardinal River closure, and as well as our cost reduction and RACE 21 programs. Our adjusted site cost of sales are expected to decrease over the remainder of 2020, and to the end of the year, we expect to be below $60 per tonne. Our strip ratio was 11.4 to 1 in 2019, and we now expect it to decline to below 10 to 1 by 2021 as planned. We completed the major expansion of our LQ operations plant in Q2 despite the pandemic. The plant now has the capacity to produce 9 million tons annually, which will enable us to replace that higher cost production from Cardinal River with higher quality coal product at lower cost from our LQ operations. As planned, Cardinal River completed its final production in June after 51 years of mining, and the operation is now transitioning to closure. And I'll come back to our steelmaking coal business in just a few minutes. Turning to QB2 on slide eight, QB2 is a key component of tech's future growth as we rebalance our portfolio. Construction activities are ramping back up with over 3,000 people currently on site and robust COVID-19 prevention protocols in place. We are planning to continue a gradual ramp up of the construction workforce over the next three months towards the pre-suspension workforce level as conditions allow. We expect to have approximately 4,000 people on site by the end of July and approximately 8,000 people on site by the end of October. We are also aiming to achieve overall project progress of close to 40% by year end. The impact of the suspension on costs and schedule will depend on the length of the suspension and the ramp up period that I just described. And I'll provide more detail on QB2 in a few minutes. Looking at progress on our Neptune facility on slide nine, we continue to advance the project, which will secure a long-term very low cost and reliable supply chain solution for our steel making coal business unit. Major equipment deliveries remain on track. COVID-19 related issues have not substantially impacted works on the critical path. The project remains in line with the previously announced capital estimate and the schedule. Terminal operations were suspended for five months as we previously announced starting in May in order to improve productivity and safety at the terminal as we advance construction. And completion of construction is still expected in Q1 of 2021, just about eight months away. Turning to key updates on our financial position on slide 10, we have a strong financial position to weather the effects of the pandemic, and we took steps to enhance it even further during the second quarter. This includes adding a 1 billion US two-years unsecured revolving credit facility, bringing the total committed credit facilities now to $5 billion U.S. We also issued $550 million U.S. of 10-year notes due July 2030, bearing interest of 3.9% per annum. We used the net proceeds to purchase near-term notes and to repay amounts drawn on our $4 billion revolving credit facility. This is a conservative that we think is prudent during these COVID-19 times, and it reinforces our commitment to maintaining very strong liquidity and our investment grade credit profile. We also continue to focus on our cost reduction program. We have achieved significant reductions as of June 30th, including approximately 250 million in operating cost reductions and 430 million of capital cost reductions, and Ron will provide further details later in the presentation. And looking at our guidance on slide 11, we have issued updated guidance for the second half of 2020, 
which were visits to reflect the continued uncertainty around the extent and duration of the impact of the pandemic on both demand and prices for our commodities. We've also changed the categories under which we present our capital expenditures guidance. So going forward, we will present capital expenditures in three buckets, first sustaining capital, then growth capital, and finally capitalized stripping, which you've all been getting used to for the last five years. We will continue to report QB2 capital expenditures and external funding separately. Spending previously categorized as major enhancement capital is now primarily considered sustaining capital, and new mine development is now included in growth capital. The Neptune upgrade project and Race 21 are considered both growth capital. You'll find all the details of our updated guidance in the guidance tables in our press release. I will now run through highlights of our second quarter by business units, starting with steel making coal on slide 12. As I mentioned earlier, Q2 steel making coal sales were 5 million tons, and this is higher than originally expected, despite steel makers cutting production faster than during the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. Our adjusted site cost of sales increased to $68 per ton, reflecting the COVID-19 impacts to our production cost. Production averaged around 80% of plan in the quarter due to the pandemic. We reduced our workforce by up to 50% for physical distancing requirements starting on March 25th, and then we ramped back up to 75% on April 10th, and on May 12th, we returned our workforce levels to 100%. Looking forward, we expect 5 to 5.4 million tons of sales in Q3, given the impact of the pandemic on supply and demand, particularly ex-China. Adjusted site costs of sales are expected to decrease over the remainder of 2020, as I'd mentioned, and we expect to end the year below $60 per ton of site costs. Our production guidance for the second half of the year reflects the estimated impacts of the pandemic and the suspension of terminal operations at Neptune. Turning to our copper business unit, our Q2 results are summarized on slide 13. Copper production of 59,000 tons in the quarter reflects the 43-day temporary suspension of operations at Antonina to support Peruvian COVID-19 response efforts and to facilitate a change in workforce. Antamina has since then ramped up to full production, which is ahead of our original expectations, and we now expect to achieve full production in the complete third quarter. At Highland Valley, after initially reducing on-site workforce by 50% and scaling back operations, we have now gradually ramped back up to full production rates. In Chile, at our Carmandan de Coyo and Provada Blanco operations, we have generally maintained production levels while reducing the on-site workforce where possible. Significantly lower total cash unit costs before byproduct credits than in the same period last year reflect our cost reduction program, or CRP, and also favorable exchange rates. Lower byproduct credits resulted in slightly lower net cash unit costs after byproduct credits in the same period. Turning to QB2 on slide 14, as I said earlier, we are planning to continue a gradual ramp up of the construction workforce over the next three months towards the pre-suspension workforce level as conditions allow. The impact of the suspension on costs and schedule will of course depend on the length of the suspension and on that ramp up period. In the second quarter, we expensed $133 million of costs associated with the QB2 project suspension and also $75 million of interest for the project that would have otherwise been capitalized if construction had not been suspended. As at June 30th, we have expensed a total of $165 million due to the suspension, excluding interest. Looking forward, in the third quarter, we expect to continue to expense some costs associated with the project suspension, as well as some interest that would have otherwise been capitalized. Assuming the ramp-up proceeds through the third quarter as currently planned, the aggregate estimated impact from the suspension 
is expected to be approximately 260 to 290 million U.S., excluding interest, with a scheduled delay of approximately five to six months. In addition, we expect to construct more camp space at an incremental cost of 25 to $3 million U.S. to ensure that we can maintain necessary physical distancing protocols to protect the health and safety of our construction workforce. If we are not able to ramp up through the third quarter according to the current plan, each additional month of partial suspension impact is expected to have an additional cost impact of approximately 25 to 35 million and one month of additional scheduled delay. Our zinc business unit results for the second quarter are summarized on slide 15. And as a reminder, Antimina's zinc-related financial results are reported in our copper business unit. Red Dog Zinc and Concentrate sales were 93,800 tons, reflecting the normal season pattern of Red Dog sales. Our net cash unit costs after byproduct credits were six cents US per pound lower than the same period last year, despite three cents per pound in unexpected costs associated with COVID-19. Travel restrictions and modified schedules remain in place at Red Dog due to the fly-in, fly-out nature of the operation. And maintenance schedules and our ability to respond to maintenance challenges were impacted as a result of that in Q2. Red Dog zinc production was lower than the same period one year ago, primarily due to those maintenance challenges and also to lower grades resulting from mine sequencing changes to manage site water levels which restricted some access to high-grade ore. We continue implementing an increased number of tailings and water-related projects in 2020 to manage increased precipitation and water levels at Red Dog. It seems the frequency of extreme weather events has been increasing, and these projects are designed to ensure that we can continue to optimize the mine operations. At trail operations, production of refined zinc in the quarter was impacted by annual zinc roaster maintenance. Looking forward, the Red Dog Concentrate shipping season commenced on July 13th, following a delay due to the failure of the loading arm on one of our two shipping barges. Shipping is being completed with one barge operational now, and we currently expect that repairs to the other barge will be completed by the end of July. This will affect the timing of customer deliveries, but barring unforeseen severe weather conditions, we do expect to ship all Red Dog production during the shipping season. We expect Red Dog sales of 160 to 180,000 tons of contained zinc in Q3, which reflects normal seasonality. Red Dog production is expected to return to full production rates in the third quarter as throughput and grades improve. However, water levels at site may continue to restrict access to high-grade ore in the second half of 2020. Our energy business unit results for the second quarter are summarized on slide 16. As previously announced, the Fort Hills partners safely and officially reduced operations to a single train facility during the quarter, which helped reduce the negative cash flows in light of COVID-19 and the unprecedented low Western Canadian select prices. Production was also negatively impacted by extreme wet weather, resulting in flooding in the mining area in June and early July. However, we expect to remain within the full year production guidance that we provided in Q1 of 2020. As a result of lower realized prices, we recorded inventory write downs of $23 million in the second quarter. Please note that adjusted operating costs are low in the quarter because of inventory write-downs, which are adjusted out. For the first half of the year, and including 46 million in inventory write-downs, our site production costs are within our previously issued annual guidance of 37 to $40 Canadian per barrel of bitumen for the period. Looking forward, our guidance for production, operating costs, and capital spending is unchanged from the disclosure provided last quarter. Fort Hills partners continue to monitor market conditions 
and may adjust the operating plan for Fort Hills accordingly. And with that, I will pass it over to Ron Mills for some comments on our financial results. Ron, over to you. Um, great. Thank, <clears throat> excuse me. Thanks, Don. And I'll, I'll start by addressing the changes in our cash position uh, uh, during the second quarter, which was shown on slide 17. So we've uh, generated $300 million in cash flow from operations in the quarter. Uh, we issued uh, U.S. $550 million of the 10-year notes and used the net proceeds to repurchase uh, $268 million of the notes uh, maturing in 2021, 22, and 23 and used the balance to reduce draws on our $4 billion uh, revolving credit facility, resulting in, in the transactions being uh, leverage neutral. Uh, in the second quarter, we had a net reduction of U.S. $32 million on the draws against our revolver, and we did draw U.S. $388 million on the QB2 project financing. And that accounts for most of the increase in our total debt, which, uh, which totaled $6.2 billion at the end of June versus $5.5 billion at the end of March. Our capital spending was $889 million in the quarter. Of that, 97 was stripping activities, and the, the largest single piece was $446 million on QB2. We paid or $78 million in interest and uh, finance charges and $52 million on expenditures on investments and other assets. We repaid $40 million of lease liabilities and paid $26 million for our regular five-cent uh, quarterly uh, base dividend. So after these and other minor items, we ended the quarter with cash and short-term investments of $336 million. Uh, turning on to the COVID expenditures on slide 18, uh, in, in terms of the accounting, uh, what we're doing is costs related to capital projects that do not qualify for capitalization are expensed as incurred in our other operating uh, income expense line item. And these are primarily uh, the, the demobilization, remobilization, current maintenance costs. Uh, costs not directly related to the production uh, of our products, our expenses occurred in cost of sales, uh, but they're not included in our costing of inventory, so they're not flow through our future earnings when the products are ultimately sold. So they're expe basically expensed in the quarter incurred. Uh, and, and again, borrowing costs on capital projects that are temporarily suspended are charged against finance expense as, as they're no longer allowed to be capitalized while the project is down, and that's primarily uh, QB2. And we've deducted all of our COVID-19 related costs that are expensed from our profit attributable to shareholders in our adjusted earnings table to assist readers in analyzing, understanding our operating results absent the effects of the pandemic. Uh, in the second quarter, um, we expensed 260 million related to COVID on a pre-tax basis, 133 million of that related to the temporary suspension of construction at our QB2 project and $18 million, uh, was related to the temporary closure of Antamina and COVID-19 uh, fund donations. $75 million in additional finance expense um, uh, was, uh, was expensed rather than capitalized against QB2 uh, during the construction period. And then we had $34 million related to uh, other incremental costs at our various operations. So on a year-to-date basis, uh, we've expensed $304 million related to COVID-19, and that includes 80 million of interest that would otherwise have been capitalized. Uh, slide 19 uh, summarizes our cost reduction program. So to the end of June, we have achieved approximately 250 million of operating cost reductions and 400 million of capital cost reductions. And of that total, uh, 305 million uh, was achieved in the second uh, quarter. And, and just as a reminder, these reductions are against what we were expecting to spend back at the end of June 2019 when we started looking at, uh, at cost reduction opportunities. The direct reductions are spread throughout the company with the majority of the operating business units. They include the satellite projects, the exploration projects, our IT systems, and our admin and operating costs uh, throughout the company. And the savings from our cost reduction program have been included in our guidance uh, since we've announced the program uh, back in, in Q3 with our Q3 uh, 2019 results. And they are included in our current updated guidance as well. Uh, turning to slide 20, uh, we have a strong financial position to weather the effects of the pandemic. And as Don mentioned earlier, we took steps to enhance it further during the second quarter by adding a new two-year unsecured revolving credit facility. So together with the U.S. $4 billion revolving credit facility, uh, which matures in 2024, 
and our U.S. $2.5 billion project financing uh, facility for QB2. This new $1 billion facility and the extension of debt maturities gives tech significant liquidity as we complete QB2 and the Neptune Terminal Facility upgrade while we uh, go through the, uh, uh, the COVID situation. We've currently drawn $195 million on our U.S. $4 billion revolver, uh, and our current cash balance is $430 million. And amounts available on our lines of credit, we currently have Canadian $6.9 billion of uh, liquidity. Importantly, uh, our, our, uh, our facilities ha do not have any earnings or cash flow-based financial covenants. We do not have a, include a credit rating trigger, and there's no uh, general material adverse effect borrowing condition. So the only financial covenant that we have is a net debt to capitalization ratio that cannot exceed 60%, and at June 30th, that ratio was 22%. And for our QB2 project, we have currently drawn $563 million on the $2.5 billion limited recourse uh, facility. Going forward, uh, project funding will be from that fine project financing till the project reaches a specific ratio of uh, project financing to so total shareholders' funding. Tech's next contributions are not expected until the first half of 2021. And, of course, that is subject to the impact of the pandemic on the project schedule and timing of, of the capital spending. We do not expect COVID-19 impacts to prevent us from drawing on the project financing facility. And as previously mentioned, we, uh, we issued the $550 million of notes that are due in July 2030. They bear interest at 3.9%, and we use the net proceeds to purchase $268 million of the 21s, 22s, and 23s, uh, and the balance of those proceeds were used to reduce the draws on the $4 billion uh, credit facility. We've also given notice of our intention to redeem the remaining U.S. $13 million balance on the 2021 notes that were not tendered to our recent offer, uh, and that's expected to happen by the end of this month. And after that, we'll leave us with only U.S. $258 million of notes maturing until February 20, 2023, and after that, there are no notes due until the new 10-year notes mature in July 2030. Uh, the combination of these uh, various transactions is obviously uh, leverage neutral. Uh, we also have investment-grade credit ratings from the four credit rating agencies. So overall, our financial position is in good shape to allow us to weather the challenges around COVID-19. And with that, I will turn the call back over to Don for his closing comments. Thanks, Ron. To wrap up on slide 21, Tech has quality operating assets in stable jurisdictions. We're advancing a proper growth strategy that is funded and is being implemented. We continue to progress our four key priorities, which are the QB2 project, Race 21, the Neptune upgrade project, and our company-wide cost reduction program to reduce spending. We are executing on these priorities to create value and position Tech for decades to come and we are confident that our strategy will drive significant value over the long term as the world recovers from COVID-19. And with that, we would be happy to answer your questions. I should say that, like many of you, most of us are on phone lines from home, so please bear with us if there's a delay while we sort out who will answer your questions. So, operator, over to you for questions. Certainly. Thank you. The first, uh, once again, please press star one on your telephone keypad if you have a question. The first question is from Orest Wokoda from Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, last quarter, you, you warned that you were seeing uh, customers defer contracted uh, coal volume. I'm just curious if you're still seeing that, uh, whether customers, I guess, outside of China are still deferring and whether the guidance for Q3 assumes a higher proportion of spot sales uh, in that number. Okay, thanks, Oris. Good question. I'll turn that over to Riel. Riel Foley? Yeah, can you hear me, Don? Go ahead, there you are. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, thank you. Uh, thanks for the question, Orest. Uh, so, uh, actually, we're seeing quite the opposite uh, right now. Uh, you're right, in Q2, we had deferred sales, but now uh, some of the customers that had deferred sales 
are actually bringing some back into Q3. And there's a couple of reasons for this, actually. Uh, first, if you look at the steel price, it is back to nearly where it was at the beginning of 2020, pre-COVID-19. And uh, as steel production is coming back, of course, uh, demand for, for our customers' products is increasing, and we are seeing some increased production in some areas. But as uh, steel mills reduced production during Q2, they were also a lot quicker to reduce their inventory as well than they did during the global financial crisis in, in 08, 09. They basically leveraged the learnings, uh, the technical learnings from that period. So, of course, as production is, is starting to ramp up for steel products, they need to import uh, steel-making coal from the market, and this is what we are seeing from our customers. And your last question on uh, the ratio of, of spot to contracted sales, uh, our ratio remains very similar, around 40% of the contracted sales and the balance is spot sales. Oh, that's great. Thank you. That's great to hear. Um, and then just finally on the cost for coal, um, you, you talked about an exit rate this year of on-site costs of less, less than uh, $60 a ton uh, by year-end. Um, that's certainly a, a you know, big improvement from what we've seen the first half of the year. Should, should we take that to, to mean that for costs for 2001, at least on-site costs, are going to average below that 60 a ton? I, I think you're meaning 2021. I'll turn that yeah, over to... Sure. Uh, um, yeah, you bet. That's uh, appreciate the question, Oris. Um, there's a number of things that have happened in the in the coal BU over the last few years, and I've kind of walked the group through that a few times. So I'm going to take the opportunity to take a shot at it again, just because it sets up for the structural change that's occurred. So the the first thing that I've spoken to a number of times is the strip ratio, and you know that's a key cost driver for us. And for the last three years, we've been uh, transitioning from the Coal Mountain closure and setting up for the expansion of LQ, where we needed to go, where we want to go from seven to nine million tons. To do that, we had to run a higher strip ratio through 2019, so that was around 11.4 to one. Um, we, we're going to come in around 10.7 to one in 2020, but in the second half, we're actually going to be mining at less than 10 to one, and that'll continue then through the through into 2021 uh, and forward. So. That, that key structural change of getting the strip ratio established at a 10 to 1 average or below was, was the biggest part of getting our cost structure adjusted. The second key piece of that was bringing Cardinal River into closure. So that, that's been done, as we mentioned. And just to put that in perspective, that, that operation ran at uh, almost double the cost of sales as the BU average. So bringing that to closure actually reduces our cost per ton by about three bucks a ton. So that's for cost of sales, sorry. That, so that's been, uh, that's been established. And then the third piece of the puzzle was getting LFU expanded. And we've successfully done that. LFU now is capable of 9 million uh, tons per year. So when the market comes around, we're well positioned now with that operation, which is low cost and produces a higher quality product. So and I know this has been talked about a few times again, but that will generate about $160 million of EBITDA annually uh, if the price of coal is at 150 and I think the exchange around 135 or 138. So, so that structural shift from shutting, shutting down high cost tonnage and replacing it and more with low cost tonnage has had a significant structural change. And then the fourth component that we're executing through 2020 is race 21. And we know and have spoken to a number of times the kind of value that that can create across the company and, and certainly within the coal BU. So when you combine all those things together, uh, when I say we will exit 2020 at $60 a ton or lower, um, we will be less than $60 a ton going into 2021 and be able to sustain that. And we've got you know, significant opportunity to to build on that on that uh, performance just with the work being done in race 21. So, pretty excited about both the second half of this year and and 2021. If you look at cost of sales below $60 a ton, we're, you know, that's roughly $44 a ton U.S. So, 
on an operating basis, we're, we're going to be operating at a good cost. That's excellent. Thank you very much for the color. Thank you. The next question is from Greg Barnes from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Yes, thank you. I just want to continue on the coal side. On Neptune, Don, it sounds like it's on track for completion Q1. I just want to understand more about the rail capacity through Vancouver to get the volume of coal to Neptune that you want. Has the work been done to open that up? Is that being done as we speak, or is it being completed, and will it be ready by the time that the Neptune's ready? Uh, yes, it is. And uh, I, I should say just before I turn it over to Ian Anderson that uh, that uh, we had a terrific visit uh, to site at Neptune um, just last week. And uh, it is impressive what they've been able to accomplish so far. And it, uh, it gave us a lot of confidence. So, uh, Ian, are you there? Or if not, uh, Rael? Yeah, I'll take that, uh, Don. So, uh, Greg, I guess one thing to say is uh, we, we've also had uh, visits with CN as to uh, some infrastructure upgrades that uh, they are doing uh, to address the, the increased tonnage. This is on schedule, progressing very well, and uh, at this point we have no concern with capacity being sufficient to maximize the volume throughput uh, through Neptune, which is our overall uh, goal to ensure that we have long-term competitive supply chain. Great. Thanks, Riel. Um, Don, secondarily, the guidance on QB2 construction now, just to be clear, by October, assuming everything goes according to plan, you will be back at full construction on the project. That's, that is the plan. Obviously, everything's subject to uh, uh, the uh, wrap up from here. We're, we're actually about 3,400 people on site today, and we think we'll be at 4,000 by the end of the month, which is not that far off, of course. Uh, and between now and then, one of the key uh, key uh, criteria is to to get um, uh, to the room, and we've developed protocols. This has has been done with the health authorities elsewhere in the country uh, to do that. So, uh, if all goes according to plan, yes, we'd be at full strength by October. And uh, starting to get that, you know, three to four uh, percent completion per month uh, thereafter. So it isn't done yet. Obviously, there's still uh, ways to go, but uh, we're, we're encouraged. We come from uh, the demobilization level was at about 400 people on site, so we, we've come from 400 to 3,400, uh, headed the right direction. But um, uh, still, still ways to go. Okay. And again, according to plan, the five to six month delay in the construction schedule will mean that you get first ore in the mill, uh, hopefully by the end of 2022, or is it slipping um, into 2023 yeah, no, that, now? Yeah, into 2022. We, could, we said a delay of five to six months. Um, you know, we'd initially said Q2 of 2022, so uh, you, you should think in terms of a couple of quarters, that's right. Okay, great, thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Kurt Woodworth from Credit Swiss. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, Don. Good morning. Um, first question is just on portfolio construction. So when you kind of evaluate the copper supply landscape today, you know, you look at Codelco and others in terms of challenges to, to meet mine production. I wonder if you could give us an update on, on Project Satellite and any monetization efforts there, I would think, with sort of the recovery we've seen in the markets, there would maybe be some more momentum on that front. Yeah, I'll turn it over to uh, Andrew Golding in just a minute. But, uh, yeah, we remain constructive on the copper market uh, for the long term, uh, which is why we have, uh, you know, a portfolio rich in opportunities uh, to develop. But but we don't need to do them all ourselves. So, as we've said in the past, uh, um, if uh, market conditions are appropriate and, and interest is there, we could uh, sell outright or contribute to another company, take back shares, that sort of thing. Um, there are two projects of the five that are uh, advanced enough that uh, we think it's appropriate to look at uh, potential transactions when the market is right. But we're not quite sure the market's all the way there yet, though Copper, of course, has had quite a run. Um, why don't I stop there and turn it over to, to Andrew with any other thoughts that you may want to share? Um, can you hear me, uh, Don? Yes. Okay, good. 
Um, yeah, I don't really have a great deal to add to what you said there. I mean, clearly, there are some uh, significant logistical constraints uh, as a result of COVID-19 in uh, advancing field work. And for that matter, uh, if we wanted to conduct any form of sales process, that would be logistically extremely challenging right now. But um, we are in very good shape for when uh, it becomes uh, logistically more practical to uh, to take potential buyers interested parties to sites. So um, we continue to get a, a lot of interest. These are very good projects uh, by world standards and obviously backdrop of a a positive copper market. Um, these are things we'd hope to advance COVID notwithstanding in uh, 2021. Okay, that makes sense. And then just a follow up, uh, maybe for Real on, on the coke and coal market. It seems like you know there's been some increased activity out of India, but then um, there's been some reports around quota restrictions being you know, potentially exhausted in, in China. I was wondering if you could just provide a little bit more, you know, granular outlook in terms of what you're seeing perhaps regionally in terms of the demand uh, trends you're seeing in coke and coal. Thank you. Yeah, so thanks, Kurt. Um, so let, let's look at maybe China first uh, to, to address uh, one part of your question on the import restrictions. So the, the China economy is, is really continuing to recover and, and showing well. and. The steel industry is uh, producing very strongly right now with uh, achieving record production in both May and June. So year to date, they're, they're running at a high level. And as a result, the seaborne coking coal imports into China have also been very strong with May year to date up 11 million tons year over year. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, reduced Mongolian coking coal imports are one thing. They're down 9 million tons year over year. Uh, lower domestic coking coal production, uh, they're actually down 3 million tons year over year. Uh, the seaborne the price is still lower than the domestic coking coal price. Today it's around 60 bucks and it's, it's been above 50 for a while now. Um, and then we're, we're seeing uh, sustained demand, increasing demand from the, the coastal steel mills. Uh, so that is, that is all helping with the seaborne market. Now, when we look at outside of China, uh, depending on, on the market areas, there is definitely still risk uh, with the pandemic, uh, but we are seeing some economies reopen. And as, as I answered the one question earlier, we are seeing some customers bring back defer, originally deferred tons into Q3. Uh, and that's a result of uh, reopening economies, but it is also um, a, a result of uh, expected supply disruptions, ongoing supply disruptions this year, but also expected further production cuts as we're going through the year, whether it's related to COVID-19 or overall uh, mine disruptions. So when you look at the Woodmax figures, for instance, they're uh, forecasting that uh, seaborne exports this year will be down 30 million tons. That includes somewhere around 10 million tons from the U.S., a little bit less from Australia, uh, Russia, Canada, Mozambique, somewhere in the 2 to 3 million ton range. And uh, for those other markets outside of China, the China steel exports are also a lot lower this year, which is continuing to support production as, as the economy recovers in those other parts of the world. In India, uh, monsoon season uh, will, will be over uh, during the quarter, so we are expecting to see some demand come back as a result of that as well. Great. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. 
The next question is from Jackie Przbelowski from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, I just wanted to get some more color from you guys on uh, on what's happening at Red Dog, uh, if you don't mind. I know in the MDNA it says that um, there's a risk to uh, to grade, I guess specifically uh, for the second half of the year if the water um, water conditions continue to restrict access. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what what is the uh, risk to the guidance that you've given and uh, and how much uh, additional sort of work might need to be done or CapEx might need to be spent to mitigate those risks? Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Jackie. We'll turn that over to either uh, Dale or Shazak. Yeah, that's Dale. Um, thanks, uh, Dawn, and thanks, Jackie. Um, yeah, to, just to give you a bit more color on, on the issue, um, you know, due to changing climate conditions, we have experienced uh, higher precipitation levels at uh, at red dog in recent years and and uh our, our discharge capacity for uh water that we do collect on site uh is restricted and and uh it, it it's also dependent on background levels um in in in, in our discharge water uh, as well so we are seeing naturally higher levels uh that we're discharging into which does restrict us so in order to manage those water balances, we are uh, actually storing water in various areas in, uh, at the site, and that includes in our, in our pits. And so uh, when we have to store water in our pit, it, ref it, it does um, restrict us from accessing the higher grade at the bottom of the pit, and we're having to mine uh, lower, lower, gra lower grades towards the top of the pit. So what we're doing about it is we are um, uh, raising the tailings dam to store more water in that facility, and that will be complete uh, in the next two to three months uh, for the next lift of the tailings dam. And we're also building, and, and that's normal course, but we're kind of staging that in a bit of a different way to get capacity earlier. And we're also um, uh, increasing our uh, water uh, treatment capacity and, and putting in a, a, a reverse osmosis pump um, that that is probably uh, costing in the range of twenty five million dollars US uh, that wasn't originally budgeted. All right, thanks. So that's sort of a one time. Uh, I guess both of those things are one time costs, and then after that, you should have uh, sufficient water capacity to manage going forward. Yeah, through future tailings dam lifts and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. other water management uh, um, efforts, exactly. Great. And if I could just ask one follow-up question um, on Red Dog. I noticed at the back of the MDNA where, where you talk about the cost, uh, the royalties for Red Dog seem to be uh, a, a credit to, um, to text this quarter. And, and can you just help me maybe interpret or explain um, what what happened with the the royalties uh, in the zinc division this quarter? Thanks. Ron, I'm not sure if you want to take that one. Ron Mills, are you there? Sorry, just uh, my apologies. Coming off mute. It, it's a cash flow royalty based uh, calculation. Um, so it's, uh, I might have to dig into the numbers there on that one, but, uh, and, and it's, um, it, it ties in with when we receive the, um, the, uh, the, the, the receipts from the sales and, and when we pay our bills and stuff. And in the, you know, in the first half of the year, we're generally uh, buying a lot of supplies, uh, and, and paying for those supplies, getting ready for the shipping season. And of course, we have no uh, lower sales volume, so the revenue coming in is a lesser number. So there's a good chance that uh, it's, it's, it's uh, but it generally catches up in the latter half of the year, where uh, you see the largest royalty payment would normally be in uh, Q1 uh, based on the Q4 results. Okay, got it. Thanks a lot, Ron. That's that's it for me. Thank you. The next question is from Oscar Cabrera from CIBC. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you, Brader, and, and good morning, everyone. Um, so I'm just wondering, um, in, in QB2, there's been reports coming out of different companies in Chile where uh, there's, you know, there's been a reduced uh, workforce, um, you know, two-thirds reported by Antofagasta. So wondering in the ramp up uh, assumptions that you're making for 
your labor force in, in the QB2 construction. Um, what are your assumptions in terms of, um, you know, allowance by the government to, to, um, to do everything safely? And then secondly, there was also, there's been also been reports of, of labor just being reluctant to, uh, to go back to sites without any, you know, strict uh, policies on, on COVID-19. I just wonder if you can comment on that as well. Okay, thank you, Oscar. Good question. And I'll turn that over to either Alex or Dale. Alex, are you there? Yeah, Alex here. So I'll, maybe I'll uh, uh, answer to, to Oscar here, and then Dale can chime in if he has any additional um, additional comments. But Oscar, our, our priorities here continue to be the safety of our workforce and supporting the Chilean efforts to limit the transmission of COVID-19. So the project team, Bechtel, uh, we've been working very closely with the government, with our subcontractors, and with our unions. And they've done a really good job of developing and putting protocols in place to manage the workforce, the camp environment, and the transportation of workers to and from the site. Um, so over the last couple of months, we've, we've spent a fair bit of time, um, you know, ensuring that, our, that our, essentially the, the uh, protocols that we've put in place are, are, are working well. Um, the government's been up and inspected, inspected and are, are quite complementary in, um, in terms of what we're doing. So we, we have a trigger action response plan in place to manage the situation should we see an outbreak. And then those, the protocols that we have in place there are to manage, um, you know, so to ensure that, we, ensure that we have timely identification of symptoms, and particularly as we see, see some case, uh, cases of workers that are arriving at site, um, you know, who, who, um, who may, may bring the d disease with them. Um, so we're, we're um, looking at, at testing, um, uh, basically quarantine and medical treatment and working with the government on that. Um, and we have a COVID committee that meets regularly to review the status of what we're doing and to approve all of the additional ramp-up um, uh, changes that we're, that we're having. So a lot of protocols in place and working very closely with uh, both the government and, and our subcontractors and unions. So we, we haven't seen any um, substantive uh, challenges to date, uh, but um, should, we do, should, should we see challenges, we, we do have a response plan uh, prepared to, to manage, manage those. Uh, so with that, maybe I'll pass it over to Dale to if he has any additional comments on that. No, I think, I think you've covered it off well, uh, uh, Alex. Yeah, you know, okay. add Oscar, as for those who have followed us closely through the beginning of the construction of this project, you may recall that during the first year, we had several delays related to permitting and it was, uh, it was very slow in our permitting process, but one of the silver linings to the COVID delay is that uh, the government, uh, the federal government and, and local governments and the independent regulators and so on have been working very hard in getting through that. So yesterday we actually got the final uh, group of permits uh, that had been outstanding. So we're very, very pleased about that to, to be able to go forward with construction. Great. No, that's, that's helpful. Thank you, Don and uh, Alex and Dale. Um, now, we just if I may, going back to the, you know, to the, the coal market, it sounds that you are more optimistic on the fundamentals of, uh, of metallurgical coal. You know, however, we haven't seen prices move you know, above $110 a ton based on plats, and this is for the last month or so. I was just wondering if you can comment on this notion of, of Chinese um, restocking in the first half of the year to make sure that they have enough materials to process in the second half to have more disruptions. Because, I mean, that is the bearish argument. The bullish argument is that there is enough demand in the second half, and hence that's why, you know, all of the things that, um, that you have pointed to would, would suggest a higher cooking coal price in the second half of the year. Can you just add more color on that, please? Uh, those are interesting concepts, uh, and that's just one of the things about the commodities markets. You can always create a scenario, both bullish or bearish, um, based on, on a number of factors like you've listed. But, Real, I'm going to turn it over to you if you want to take a shot at, at answering that. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Oscar. Um, so, yes, the price is, is holding around $110 right now. Uh, so we, we are seeing positive signs out there in terms of demand, uh, whether it's out of China or markets outside of China. 
But uh, of course, there, there is still uncertainty with the pandemic. Uh, and we, we've seen reductions on both the demand and the supply side. So the, the market is, is still trying to find a balance uh, for sure. But uh, we, we are uh, cautiously more optimistic about Q3 than we were, say, uh, at the beginning of uh, Q2. So we, we are seeing changes. With respect to uh, restocking, we have not really seen restocking in China uh, right now, because uh, China steel industry is, is running at record high levels. Um, and when, when you look at what is happening in terms of supply, the, the, the increase in seaborne supply is just about balancing the reductions from uh, Mongolian imports but also domestic coking coal production. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, no, that 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 does, uh, Real. Thanks very much, and you know, congratulations for strong performance uh, under challenging situations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, operator, I think uh, we've got time for maybe one more question here before we hit the top of the hour. Certainly. The next question and last question is from Alex Hacking from City. Please go ahead. Hi. Uh, good morning. Um, I just wanted to uh, clarify something on the uh, on the QB2 uh, capex. Um, I think when you when you when you put out the update uh, a few months ago, um, you said that the sensitivity to the peso, um, if the peso, I think you would republished at 775 as the underlying assumption is that if the peso went to 850, there would be about a $240 million uh, benefit on the CapEx. Should we assume that that you know, relationship is linear? Um, obviously, copper uh, has strengthened, the peso strengthened. So if the peso were to go back to 700, would it be fair to assume kind of a $240 million headwind there? I'm just trying to understand how that relationship works. Thanks. Okay, that would be for Alex, please. And at the time that we published, the peso was 850, actually, which is why we did that sensitivity. It's right close to uh, the 775, 770 or so right now. Um, Alex, over to you. Yeah, certainly. Thanks. <clears throat> Sorry, thanks, Alex. Um, and in general, um, you know, as as the exchange rate changes, the exposure to the exchange rate is somewhat different. But but in, in general, the the relationship is is close to linear. Um, you know, obviously, the um, the higher the uh, or the say the lower the peso becomes against the U.S. dollar, um, the the less exposure you have to the Chilean peso. But um, you know, in, inside a a couple hundred um, peso to the U.S. dollar um, exchange rate, that, that the relationship you can assume that it's it's close to linear, with with just just around seventy percent or sixty nine percent of our of our to go capital at, at uh, exposed to the Chilean peso. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think. I think that uh, was the last question. So I just want to say thank you to everybody for joining us uh, uh, for the call today. Uh, we're very pleased to get Q2 behind us. Uh, Q2 2020 um, was, a, was a tough one for sure. Things have improved uh, significantly. Uh, we're delighted to have the LQ plant expansion uh, complete and got that done despite COVID. We're delighted to be ramping up um, uh, slowly but surely at QB2 and look forward to getting back to full strength there. Uh, in October, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, continued uh, global recovery from the pandemic uh, uh, in, throughout Q3 and Q4, and we'll speak to you again uh, in October. Thanks very much, all. Meeting adjourned. Thank you. The conference is now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time, and we thank you for your participation. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.